0: This podcast is proudly brought to you by Solar Heart Sydney, the most trusted name in solar with over 70 years of experience on Sydney's rooftops. This is a Hope 1032 podcast. Good morning. Let's pray a short prayer that God would help us. Let's bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, we ask again this morning that you would give us some food from your word. And that what we read, you would help us to do. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a small card on my desk at home. It's written to me from a young mother of two. As far as I know, she's not a Christian. And she had the experience of, first of all, seeing her husband become a Christian. And then the great tragedy of having him die quite suddenly and leave her and these two children. And the little card is a reminder to me that there are burdens or difficulties which are brought to bear, which prohibit slick, lightweight, superficial answers. It's also a reminder to me that the resources that I have or that we have is all too deficient and that we really need to ask God to again and again carry the challenge or the weight that he's brought to bear on his people. Now I say that to you because as we come this morning to the vision of Ezekiel, we see that God allows something to take place which seems disastrous. He then provides what is needed in order that the people might cope and grow and he uses the whole situation to create a witness in his servant and in his people, which would not have come about except through this particular means. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 1 is our vision. You'll see there in the 30th year, says Ezekiel, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, that's in what we would call Iraq, ancient Babylon, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. The vision prepares the individual for service of a very wonderful kind, but it also teaches instructive things about God's glory. We need the glory of God revealed in his word for us because the church, as you know, is getting more and more man-centered across the world. And if you look at the books which are selling popularly in the bookshops, you'll find that so many of them are just self-help books. You'll find that many of the talks that are being given are just little uh, light pep talks And what is needed is something of the meat and the weight of the character of God. This great subject will not only honour him so that we see him rightly, it will also sustain us through very difficult times and it will also give some impact to those we mix with. And I want to look with you at the vision under three headings this morning. The first is what God allows... The second is what God reveals and the third what God sends or commissions as a result. First of all, what God allows. Now the context of this vision, the setting, is really important for appreciating it. And what has taken place, as we've already been told, is that there is a huge upheaval with the people of God lifted by the enemy and taken off into hostage territory. Uh, Not only are the people of God exiled and rejected and discouraged, but Ezekiel himself is in a little personal crisis because he was training for the priesthood and now he's been removed from the very temple center where he might have exercised any ministry. Now let's think about these two. The first is the exile God's people in Ezekiel are well down the Old Testament story. You've got to remember now that we've said goodbye to Abraham, we've said goodbye to Moses, we've said goodbye to Joshua, we've said goodbye to David. The people of God have moved into the promised land and you would expect that that would be as secure as God himself and now they have been whisked out of the promised land and they are in absolute perplexity. The prophets had warned the people of God that their ungodliness would bring serious consequences but the prophets unfortunately were ignored and uh, these prophets have proven to have spoken the truth. The Babylonians have moved in, they've carried away approximately 10,000 of the cream of the Israelites and Ezekiel is one of those people and here they are they in captivity it's a remarkable thing that as we read our papers today and we read of hostages in iraq we are looking into our bibles today and we are seeing hostages in iraq or ancient babylon in about 592 bc the people of god hostage prisoner outside the promised land and as they're taken off to this captivity they must have asked questions like this did god lose Has the overthrow really meant that God's promises and plans are all finished? Is the promised land now a thing of the past, in which case the whole plan may be a thing of the past? Is this the end of God's people? We no longer have access to him. How are we meant to worship him? It's a terrible experience, unimaginable to us and perhaps immeasurable, very different from just traveling to another country. This is actually the, uh, the dispersal of a people who God said he would center in the promised land. And then there is a crisis for Ezekiel. As you see in verse 3, training for the priesthood, and just before he can begin his service, which takes place from the age of 30 to 50, on average, he's whisked away from the very place where he might work. And um, if you could imagine a doctor being lifted up and taken off into the desert with no supplies and being told, now do your job, here is Ezekiel being lifted up and taken away from the very place where he can do his job. And for him, it's a personal crisis. Now, this is an interesting situation because um, the people are feeling great powerlessness. Powerlessness. And that means that the message of Ezekiel and Daniel, which are given to exiled people of God, is very important for us today. One writer points out that 50 years ago it was fairly normal to call yourself a Christian, it was abnormal to call yourself an unbeliever. Now in my lifetime, which is just a little over 50 years, that has completely turned 180 degrees. It is now very normal to call yourself an unbeliever and it is quite abnormal to call yourself a Christian. It's hard to find a Christian in the classrooms that our scripture teachers go to. It's hard to find a Christian in many companies. It's hard to find a Christian in our football and cricket teams. So although there are churches around us that are speaking of revival, and I was sitting next to a man, on Friday night, who told me that at his church they have 65 conversions every week. And I must say my reaction to that was delight if it's true, but just astonishment that it could be true, because it seems to me that the reality is that the church is very much marginalized, and we are much more in the exile situation. We are not As it were, as someone said, Peter on the verge of Pentecost, we are Ezekiel and Daniel in the place of uh, marginalised exile. So, this is a very significant subject. And what God allows his people in the 6th century BC to go through is a judgment. He says in 2 Chronicles that he sent his word to them again and again because he had pity on his people but they mocked God's messengers, despised his words until the wrath of the Lord was aroused and there was no remedy and he brought up against them the king of the Babylonians. So he's putting his people through a kind of a fire which is going to purify them and Ezekiel himself is not there by coincidence, he's there by providence, he's about to be made a prophet We would say this is in some ways a promotion and no longer is he going to represent people to God with the sacrifices, he's now going to represent God to people with the word. So he's got a very great job to do and that leads me to what God reveals secondly this morning. The vision in chapter 1 is so weird, so strange that it may even seem to you to be quite stupid and maybe you'll lose patience with it. Uh, It would, uh, of course, cause many people outside the church to think of the Bible as a fairly nutty book, which they've always thought, and for nutty people. Fire, creatures with four faces, four wings, flashes of lightning, intersecting wheels, throne of sapphire, and a figure of a fiery man on the throne. It is a bizarre image, isn't it? People have wondered in their writing in the past whether Ezekiel was hallucinating Uh, cynics might wonder whether Ezekiel had been smoking or taking something but uh, I want to urge you not to be too snooty about the scriptures too quickly because uh, if you are like me and you have a great um, bewilderment about modern art it nevertheless communicates to many people and we need to appreciate that uh, biblical literature which is called apocalyptic literature also communicates very powerfully not all biblical literature is just plain history Not everything in scripture is just uh, the Rembrandt type of portrayal and apocalyptic literature which literally means a revealing or an unveiling is the word behind the book of Revelation which has a lot of apocalyptic literature in it as well and these symbols in apocalyptic literature speak or convey often a thousand words with their symbols in a way that is very meaningful indeed. Before we look at the symbols however just notice in chapter 1 verse 1 that Ezekiel sees God although Ezekiel is hundreds of kilometers from the Jerusalem temple. Now that may not surprise you because we've known even from the time of Solomon that God is too big to live in a temple. The Bible tells us through Solomon's prayer that God is much too big to be contained in a box like a temple. But still, the temple was the place where God said he would meet his people, and that's where you meet God. We don't get to choose where we meet God. We meet God where he says he'll be met, and he decides how and where we will meet him, and the meeting place, he says, is the temple in Jerusalem. But now we discover that Ezekiel, well away from this temple, is meeting God in Babylon. We will find, if we were to keep reading Ezekiel, in chapter 10, that the glory of God has actually left the temple. And God is presenting himself now to the exiles. But uh, this very important subject is summarized in the word in verse 3, there. There, a long, long way away, the hand of the Lord was upon him. And that, I think, is the most significant word in some ways in the chapter that Ezekiel cut off with the exiles sees and experiences. There, the hand of the Lord. It seems from verse one to have been his 30th year, so God has not forgotten this young man. Um, He's just giving him a new job, as I say, as a prophet, not a priest. And the impact of this is unfolded in chapters two and three. So there is the people of God being given what they need, although they think they're cut off, and the servant of God being given something even more wonderful, although he thought he was cut off. The details of the vision are very powerful if you think about them. Verse 4, There is the brilliant light, an obvious sign of the glory of God. This chapter is full of light and fire. Verse 5, There are the four living creatures. Some of the details of the four living creatures are hard to be dogmatic about, but at least we could um, safely say that they are heavenly. They have uh, the wings, like the vision that Isaiah received, but they also have very earthly faces. The face of a man, verse 10, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of an eagle. And we can safely, and I think without any quibbling, say that if they have four faces that face four directions, there is something global about these creatures. There's something heavenly, there's something global. And the fact that the four creatures are the supreme creatures in creation, the man being the pinnacle of creation, the lion, the king of the beasts, the ox, the leader of the domestic animals, the eagle, the king of the air we could say that these faces indicate a superiority, a greatness, a strength, uh, even perhaps a royalty. And these four creatures, heavenly, earthly, are in perfect symmetry, absolutely cooperative. And as we read in verse 12 and verse 20, they do exactly what the Spirit tells them to do. Not only that, we see that there is um, some space, verse 22, above these creatures And there are the wheels, verse 15. The wheels, which as one writer has said, are very like casters or gyroscopes. They have the ability to move exactly in the direction which uh, they desire. They are adaptable, they're mobile. Now, when you put all this together, don't give up on it too quickly. Here is Ezekiel being given a vision which is very bright and very radiant and clearly of something glorious. He's also been given a vision of heavenly, earthly creatures in symmetry, cooperative, under the influence of the Spirit. And he's also seeing this mobility, this adaptability, this movability with the wheels. And he's also seeing the, the expanse above and the throne at the very top with this figure on the throne. And you wouldn't need to work too hard to say that by the time you've read the vision, you could be reasonably reassured by these details. It is a very reassuring vision. I'll just give you some uh, proofs of this. Do God's people think that they are defeated and that God himself is defeated? Answer, here's a picture of the glory of God in the very context of exile. Has God lost control of his world? Here are creatures, heavenly and earthly, more spectacular than anything that could be seen on the earth, completely orderly. Are they cut off from God so he is helpless to contact them or to reach them? No, the wheels show that God is able to come and go with total freedom. Don Carson says 2,500 years before the mobile phone, here we see in Ezekiel the mobile throne. (laughs) Is God demoted? Has he been replaced by King Nebuchadnezzar? No, the throne is so high, so secure, so glorious, so wonderful, that even in symbolic terms, Ezekiel is overwhelmed and falls on his face. So you see, you read this vision, bizarre as it seems on the first reading, and God is fearfully great, he's totally present, he's absolutely sovereign, and he is completely exalted. And the wonderful thing is that he wants to communicate that to his exiled people. They don't deserve it. They can't earn it. It's given to them as a part of God's kindness. And he wants them to know that he is as he is so that they might continue to trust him and to be faithful. Now when we read these details as Christians, or perhaps this morning you're a person thinking through whether the Christian faith is uh, worthwhile you have to ask yourself is god communicating these same truths today in other words it's one thing for god to have said this in the past does he say it today and the answer is that in a simple reading of the new testament he makes the same points to us today even more wonderfully so we see his glory according to the bible in the world around us we see it in his word but we also see his glory in the person of Jesus, because the disciples of the first century tell us we've seen his glory, and now we're writing about his glory. He came to live among us, say the disciples, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. There are historical realities that we have recorded for you, be assured by them. How do we see the sovereignty of God? Well we see the sovereignty of God again in his word, we see it in his genius overruling all the events of his word, we see it in his promises that he's working everything for good so that we might know that he is working everything for good and we see it supremely of course in his overruling of the opposition to his son and out of the opposition to Jesus comes this remarkable salvation, this wonderful victory, the proof for all time that God is the Master of oppositional forces. I was talking with a man recently, and I asked him how he'd become a Christian, and he said, I became a Christian because someone explained to me the swap of the cross. And When I understood the swap of the cross, that's when everything fell into place. I suddenly realized that all that I had done was placed on Christ, and all that he deserved was offered to me, the simple swap of the cross. He said, I'd been sitting in church for decades even singing in the choir, never understood the great victory, the great success of the cross. And that, of course, is the great proof to us that God is sovereign over all events. How do we um, get assured that God is able to come to us, to be near us, to draw near to us? Uh, Ezekiel, as we know, was shown this with the wheel illustration. Uh, Isaiah asked the same question, in chapter 40, why do you say my way is hidden from God? Is it possible that God can't see what's going on in our circumstances, or that he is too small to help us, or that he's too unwilling to reach us? Absolutely impossible. The gospel provides us with news of his availability, of his interest to the limit, and not only the news of the death of Christ, but also the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Comforter will come to you. He will live in you and he will live in you forever. Uh, One pastor was able to write to his, uh, a member of the um, wider church who had just been bereaved and say, I can't get to you. The distance prevents me. But then he went on to say this, the Holy Spirit has already begun his work. Of comfort in your life. And that's the great confidence for the pastor or the believer that the Spirit of God gives us this wonderful access to God's fellowship. How does God communicate the throne? Well of course we see something of this in the resurrection and the ascension, that Jesus is raised, exalted to the right hand of God. As the psalmist in Psalm 2 says, I have installed my King And therefore it's quite ludicrous to think of him being toppled or unseated. Now these things don't give a quick fix, be assured, but they do give us the precise piece of information that we need. Almost if you can imagine soldiers in the trench of battle and they're cold and they're tired and they're frightened and they are unhappy and they're missing home and they're fiddling with their radio, their two-way radio, and suddenly they discover that there are massive resources on the way to help them, and that the enemy has been reduced to almost nothing. And this simple piece of information transforms their experience in the trenches. It hasn't lifted them quickly out of the trenches, but it's changed their perspective and their attitude in the midst. That's what God does for his people through his servant The last thing, very briefly, is his sending. In chapter 2 and 3, we see the effect of the vision on Ezekiel because he's told in chapter 2 to stand on his feet and God will speak to him. And as God speaks, verse 2, the Spirit of God comes into him. The prophet Ezekiel is given the job of going to the people of Israel. He's not given the job of going to the Babylonians, although that might have been easier, and sometimes the foreign missionary has the easier job in this sense that he goes to people who are hungry and receptive and teachable, while the person like you or me who stays home in this very secular and rebellious and neo-pagan city has the hard job of talking to people who have no hunger or interest whatsoever. And Ezekiel has a, a job very similar to ours, He has to speak to the rebellious, and he's given a scroll in verse 9, which has got writing on both sides, words of lament and mourning and woe, and to take in the word, literally or symbolically, he has to eat it, and then he is able to speak it. So this is his commission after the great vision. He has the job of passing on the weighty news of the greatness of God. He's got a, a scroll covered on both sides probably because he's not to add to the Word of God. He's got an obligation to speak whatever the reaction. Very difficult and rebellious people, but verse 9 of chapter 3, God is going to make him hard and strong so that he's not to be afraid or terrified, although they are a rebellious house. And the success of Ezekiel is going to be the faithfulness of Ezekiel, not the numbers. And that's the need today. The need today is not that we would somehow pretend our circumstances are different. We are not asked today to do something beyond us. We are just asked to do something responsible, which is to take the message which we've been given, the word that we've been given of a very great and gracious God, a God who's not only in heaven but has visited the earth, who's not only great in power but gracious in character, And we're to take that message to the people that we can. We don't need big numbers with lightweight theology. We need just a few people with a heavyweight biblical theology. Let me me close by reading to you a disturbing paragraph. I hope you'll find this a challenge from a book that I'm reading called Hard Questions, Real Answers. He says this on the basis of the fact that there's a third of American people claiming to be reborn. The vast growth in evangelically minded people should by now have revolutionized American culture. With a third of American adults now claiming to have experienced a spiritual rebirth, a powerful countercurrent of morality growing out of a powerful and alternative worldview should have been unleashed in factories, offices and boardrooms, in the media, the universities and the professions, from one end of the country to the other. The results should by now be unmistakable. Secular values should be reeling and those who are their proponents should be very troubled. But as it turns out, all of this swelling of the evangelical ranks has passed unnoticed in the culture. The presence of evangelicals in American culture has barely caused a ripple. That, of course, is the danger of an all-too-lightweight Christianity which we are certainly capable of experiencing and practicing here but what is called for is a heavyweight view of god from people who are living a heavyweight word of god this is a hope 1032 production thanks for listening this podcast is proudly brought to you by solar heart sydney the most trusted name in solar with over 70 years of experience on sydney's rooftops